friends. Welcome to the In The Whisper podcast. I'm your host, Nita Wilkinson. We all know that life is just plain hard sometimes. Join me each week as I talk to a girlfriend about their journey of overcoming and how it always leads back to Jesus. Welcome back to season two of In The Whisper podcast. And today we have Erin Nestico. She has an amazing story. Spoiler alert, she does have a happy ending, but it wasn't always that way. And she has a ministry called Love Doesn't Destroy. Erin, I would just love for you to tell us why did you choose to start this ministry? Well, I started Love Doesn't Destroy in response to what happened to me in my own life. As a teenager, I started in a relationship when I was 16 where I ended up marrying the person, having children with the person, but it was abusive. And I did not know about dating violence. I didn't know the differences between healthy and unhealthy relationship. I wasn't aware of red flag. And I also think though, too, I mean, this was the late 90s. It wasn't talked about as much um, as it is now. But I spent 12 years with this person. And then once I was able to get out and God made a way for that, God was nudging at me like, you need to tell your story you need to tell your story but I had three children I was working full-time and I just kept putting it off because it's just like I don't have time you know to do this but it was always in the back of my mind and then after my fourth child was born um, and I resigned from teaching I was at our church's VBS in the craft room with my mom we were surrounded by all these teens and tween girls and I just knew the Holy Spirit just told me right then and there you have to educate these girls. You have to teach them, you know, all these things that you didn't know. And I just felt it so acutely at that moment, just, you know, with all these girls and, you know, I mean, the statistics have always been that one in four women, but now it's leaning more towards, you know, one in three women will be a victim of domestic violence. And when you were surrounded by a group of girls all waiting for something to be hot glued, you know what I mean? They're all just in a circle (laughs) around us. You just start counting, you know, these girls and you think, okay, one in three, and you look at them and it just makes that statistic so personal that I just knew then, yes, I know I'd been putting off writing the book, but I knew I had to do more than just that. I had to educate, which, you know, I was a teacher and I believe God uses everything. And my preparation as a teacher for 15 years just led into this. And now, you know, instead of teaching first graders how to read, I'm teaching teens and young women this unhealthy relationship and just bringing awareness to a much needed top. Absolutely. You started dating him when you were 16 and the abuse started while you were in high school, correct? Yes. I mean, I was not aware of it at the time, but the emotional and verbal abuse, like that uh-huh. brainwashing definitely started then. Physical abuse did not start until we were in college. Okay. But a lot of times that is a very typical pattern because emotional and verbal abuse can be very covert. It's kind of that whole grooming the victim. So you don't realize what's happening until you're so far into it. Right. Do you mind sharing the first time there was a physical interaction? Yeah, the first physical abuse was our freshman year in college. And that's the thing. We ended up being at the same college because of his emotional and verbal abuse because... Mm -hmm. Those two last two years in high school, he was always prepping me with, we're going to be together. We are going to get married. We're going to have kids. He was very popular. And so people looked at him and tell me like, wow, you are so lucky that you guys are together. Just fed into me like, wow, I'm lucky to have him and I got to keep him. And he was very adamant that if we're going to last and get married, we have to go to the same college. If you love me, you're going to go to the same college as me. It's right there. 
I think, you know, we're now more aware of, no, that wasn't that he just wanted me to be with him. That was the control. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I was with him, he could control me. So we ended up going to the same college and the first physical abuse happened because he was accusing me of cheating on him, which is also very common. Right. They tend to be very jealous, can't even just randomly smile at someone, or if you happen to be partnered up with someone, you know, who is the opposite sex, like that is a huge problem because they're very jealous. And so he had accused me of cheating on him with someone I had worked with, which was not true. And he beat me in our dorm room. He always did the same thing, would grab my hair, throw me down, spin oh me gosh. in circles, and then the kicks and the hits and the punches and with all those things. But then, you know, what stands out to me more than any of that, besides my surprise of like, you know, what is happening here? was my reaction afterwards was to follow him back to his room and get on my knees and just beg him to forgive me. Wow. Yeah. Because I was just so mentally warped and messed up mm -hmm. from him thinking that there would be no one else for me. And so, you know, I'm apologizing to an offense I didn't do after being beaten up because I was just so mentally, you know, broken. Yeah. Wow. So you were at college, and I'm sure there were outward signs that you, I mean, that a beating like that is going to leave some outward signs, but your family probably didn't see it because you were at college, right? For the most, I mean, I did go home on the weekends, and I do remember, and my mom remembers one time asking me, like, why were, you know, there bruises on my arm, and I just blew it off, like, yeah, you know what I mean? Just yeah, yeah. Whatever. But the thing was, he was always very careful, too. Like, my face would not be punched or anything. Like, it was always my, the backs of my legs, my back, my arms. Wow. You know? That's very all... deliberate. Yes, I believe so. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, to... because, yes, I've never walked around with the typical big black eye. Right. That's interesting. You went through college together, and then mm -hmm. he proposed your senior year. Yes. What did. was that like? What? Well, let's let's go back to what was your mindset? So you begged him to forgive you. So what was mm -hmm. going through your mind? I mean, the first time he grabbed you by the hair, what if you remember what went through your mind? Just that fear of how did I make him so mad? Like, what did I do wrong? It's, what did I do wrong? Interesting. Yes. At the end of college, he proposed. Did you even hesitate? Or were you sure this was the man you wanted to marry? I wouldn't even say want to marry. It was the man I felt that everyone thought I should marry. And that's the thing. I had low self-esteem. Even if people looking at me wouldn't have thought, you know what I mean, that I right. would have. I was always very unsure of myself. He was so popular and so well-liked. And so when it was fed to me year after year after year, like, you guys are the cutest couple and right. you guys are so great together. It just kept feeding that lie. And I, I mean, I know now... It was the enemy just using people around us as vessels to just keep me in that position. So my insecurity combined with his control, I mean, and his brainwashing was very effective that no one else is going to want you. And if you're not with me, you're going to be alone. So it was all just a very toxic combination. Do you think that he knew your, that you struggled with self-esteem issues? Do you think that maybe that was part of his attraction to you? Or do you think that, that he figured it out later? 
I'm not sure. And I know a lot of research says that like the people who tend to abuse kind of seek out those people. Yeah, I was wondering. Uh, I don't know how they become aware of that, but right. it's, I mean, because it's, it's the bad combination of the people pleaser, low self-esteem with the insecure controller. I don't know if once he realized he could start getting away with stuff, then it just emboldened him to keep doing more and more and more. You know, he would say things like, well, you can't hang out with your friends. Oh, if you go hang out with your friend, well, then you must love them more than me. And I would be like, no, because I was always trying to prove my love. And so I'd say, no, I love you. So then I would cancel the plans with my friends. And I think that once he got that foothold of saying like, hey, I can tell her to do this and she does it like that just gave him more power. Yes, he definitely he definitely used that. You got married. How long after college did you was it before you got married? One year. One year. So you were engaged for a year. Did it did the beating slow down then? I mean, you're planning a wedding, so you're really focused on him. It did somewhat only because of the distance because we both had graduated, but he was not happy with the degree he had chosen. So he stayed at college and I got a full-time teaching job right out of school. So I was, you know, teaching in elementary school and living with my parents and he was at college. So it did get better during that period. And so it's, and that's that vicious cycle that there's always those little snippets that like, you know, bait you into thinking okay it's right. better because i mean and his thing also was always i'm under so much stress when i get out of college you know this will be better when we're married it will be better it was always you know that promise of the next thing the next stage in life is going to make him happy and be back the person he was when we started dating right right so you got married and then you had two little girls in we did, in yes. a few years yeah. talk about when you became fearful for them Unfortunately, I realized that marriage did not stop the abuse. It really made it worse because now we're together right. all the time. You know, I mean, we live under the same roof. So, yes, we had our first daughter. The abuse continued. And he always was one who really wanted a boy. Our first child was a girl. And so then it was like, okay, well, we're going to try again. And I kept thinking, okay, if he has a boy because he wants to hunt and fish with this child, right. you know what I mean? It's He's going to be happy. But our second daughter was born. She was a girl. And in both cases, we did not find out the gender of the baby. What is ironic when I think back to it, that in my second pregnancy was the only nine months in our marriage where he never physically hit me. Even when I was pregnant the first time, I mean, he beat me so badly when I was six months pregnant with oh our my first golly. daughter. But then when this pregnant the second time, he never touched me. And I really thought like, okay, it's over. We're going to be okay. And I have no way to know for sure, but part of me thought that he never touched me because he really thought we were having a boy. Right. But that was quickly shattered because within like four days of being home, after giving birth to our second child, he physically abused me. And so that illusion, you know what I mean, was shattered. So we were living in a very small house at the time. Oh, my. um, And he was feeling very cramped, Mm -hmm. wanted his own computer room. So we bought a bigger house. And so then in my mind, I kept thinking, okay, this is what's going to be right. the end. Be, you know, he will stop now. We had a big house. We had like 40 acres. He was an outdoorsman. Now he's going to be happy. But that did not stop it. I realized I had to leave for them. Um, we had only been living in our new home about six months. The girls were three 
and one, and he beat me very badly in our kitchen, which had an open plan adjoining a living room. Our three-year-old was in the next room watching Dora. Um, And I remember so clearly after he got done beating me, I was laying on the floor. I could not even move. I thought he had actually broken one of my legs from the punches and the kicks that hurt so badly. And before he had started that beating, he had thrown, there was an open box of Ziploc bags on the Mm -hmm. counter. And that was always one of, like his MO was, once he threw something, I knew, you know, what was coming. And he had picked up that box and he had thrown it. So there was baggies everywhere all over the floor. And so I'm laying on the floor, you know, crying and not being able to move. And our three-year-old came out and she took that box and she started picking up the baggies around me and just said, Mommy, what's wrong? Oh, my gosh. And so that was the moment. I had endured this for 12 years, but I knew I had a three-year-old girl and a one-year-old girl And I was not going to have them grow up thinking that this was okay. Because I knew if I stayed, they're going to think this is normal. They're going to think this is how they should be treated. And it was like, no, the love I had for them um, overcame any fear of leaving just because I knew they cannot grow up to be like me. How did you leave? Because I would imagine after everything you've told me, it's difficult to leave a man like that. It's not something he's going to want. Oh, no. (laughs) No, that incident happened um, over with New Year's. It was New Year's of, you know, coming, becoming 2006. And it took me another two months before I could verbalize it um, to someone, even though I knew I was going to leave. But I know the only reason I was able to leave was because God put the resources that I needed at the right time when I knew I could leave. Mm-hmm. It's amazing because the people that God put in my life covered every single aspect of what I needed to leave. The first person I told was my teammate at the time, my fellow teacher, and she had gone through a divorce and her children were young. And so I had just said to her, just, you know, randomly like, oh, you know, my husband isn't happy. He's talking about us getting a divorce and just tried to like, you know, test the waters just because I knew she had been through a divorce. And, you know, I would say he wasn't happy. And so we would email on the weekends and I never could come out and say it. And I don't even know to this day what I had said in my email that prompted her, but I, it was on a weekend and we were emailing back and forth and she emailed me and she just said, Aaron, does he hit you? And it was just like, yes, he does. You know what I mean? I just, I mean, we had been together for 12 years. He'd been hitting me for 10. And it was just like, finally, like, yes, he does. Is she the first person you told? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she, you know, knew. And then what was amazing is that we had another common friend who was single she had said, you know, do you mind if I, you know, you know, tell our friend? And I said, no. So she was, you know, brought into our little circle. And then the secretary at our school just happened to be, you know, watching me. And, you know, the stress of all this, mm-hmm. um, as I was realizing I had to leave, I lost like 10 pounds in like a week. You know what I mean? It just was right. crazy. I just totally dropped weight. And the secretary had asked my teammate, said, you know, is there something going on with Erin? Because, you know, she's not looking right. And so, you know, my friend had told her. But what was amazing 
is that our secretary had been in a an abusive marriage for 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, and so she had was out of it, was remarried. But so now my the three my three angels at school, I call them, was <laughs> the friend who had been divorced and had young children, the single friend who had the availability to accompany me to lawyers appointments and support group meetings because, you know, she was single, right. she was free, she didn't have a lot of, you know, outside commitments with things like that. And then our secretary who had been in a an abusive marriage. It just still amazes me how God placed yeah. you know, those people with each of those different qualities in school with me. I mean, it was only with the three of them in their encouragement that I found the strength to tell my family because it was very hard for me to tell my family because I just had so much shame and right. embarrassment that it's very hard to admit that, well, this guy has been, you know, he beat me for four years before I married him. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> it's easier for me now, but at the time, sure, that was, it was mortifying. And so with their help, I told my family who was very supportive and from there, you know, my circle just of support kept growing. Friends, trust is such a hard issue after you've lived through the kind of abuse that Aaron lived through. But I love how God put the right people in the right place at the right time for Aaron to get the help she needed. They were very different in their personalities. They were very different in their lifestyles. But those are the exact people that Erin needed to be able to move on with her life. Trauma like Erin faced can be debilitating. That's why Gifts with Grace connects caring volunteers with women who have faced some kind of trauma. Oftentimes, it's the trauma of abuse like Erin has talked about here. Gifts with Grace empowers those women to find their faith and confidence in a compassionate environment as they work to overcome this trauma. If you haven't checked out Gifts with Grace webpage yet, you can find it at www.giftswithgrace.org. Now let's listen in as Erin talks about how this time in her life affects her daughters and where she found her happy ending. You said that the girls actually see him on Wednesdays and weekends. Well, yes, they did for 13 years. Okay. But that has now changed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they don't have to see him because I'm curious as to how that can happen. Although, did he ever, did he ever lay a hand on either of them even after you were divorced or before? He never laid a hand on them while I was there. And he never physically laid a hand on them when they had to visit, but he did do emotional and verbal abuse towards them. And he did things that were very like threatening and intimidating. Like, you know, one time he threw a sheetrock knife into the wall and was laughing about it. He just did things show his power. But yes, they were, you know, unfortunately, they were subjected to a lot of mental games and emotional abuse during those 13 years. And that's what, I mean, the only reason they don't go there now because uh, back in 2019 when they were 17 and 14 at the time they found that courage God gave them their voice to disclose like hey this is what it's like when we go over there yeah and so that they have not been there in almost two years wow that's sad on so many levels that that they don't have a dad but they do and now we'll get to the 
happy part of the story. You were able to overcome all that happened to you and trust again. So tell Mm -hmm. me about the life that you live now. Yes, God was so good with answering my prayers. And I also, by the grace of God, that yes, I have a wonderful husband. We've been married now for 12 years. Before I started dating again, you know, I really, I realized because my whole fear as a teenager and in my 20s was that fear of being alone, that no one would want me. And then, you know, when you spend 12 years with someone who abuses you, you realize very quickly it's a lot better to be alone than it is to be in an unhealthy relationship. Right, right. And so I took, you know, almost, it was like a year and a half, two years before I even thought about starting the date again, because I was just such a broken, wounded right. person. It would not have been appropriate. There was no place for me to date. I just needed to work on myself. I began dating in my late 20s, early 30s by the time by the time my birthdays came around and, you know, I did what most people do during their teens and twenties, which was to actually just date, like, you know, go on one date with a person and then go on another date with a different person and just realize that there was so much more to the world right. than that first person. And that's what I really want so many teens to know that you don't have to find a spouse in your hometown. <laughs> there right. are so many other people in this world because I didn't think that. I thought like, wow, I got to find somebody in my high school or I'm going to be alone. And it's just that is not the case. Right. I dated different people. Like one person, he seemed perfect on paper. He was another teacher and, you know, he wanted to get more serious, but there was just something holding me back. And it took a lot of willpower to not just stay in that relationship, just because it was like, that's what I did as a teenager. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do this again. Then I dated another person a little more seriously. And I could tell he was not the person equipped to handle my background. Right. Um, It's amazing that that you could tell that. That's amazing. Oh, well, and I think that was just, you know, God giving me that right. discernment to know like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, this this guy is great. See, I had a lot of baggage with emotional wounds, you know, what I mean, that somebody was going to have to deal with. And so then, yes, I met Chris, my husband. And just from the very beginning, I just knew it just felt right. I mean, before we dated for like a month before I even thought about, you know, introducing the girls to him. And yeah. I knew he was serious about wanting to do things right before we went with the girls to the zoo. But he had told me, he had Googled, you know, when your partner has kids, what's the best way, the do's and the don'ts of meeting right. kids for the first time. And I just knew he was serious about trying to do this the right way. And when he had asked why I was divorced and wanted to hear my story, he always encouraged me to talk. Another person I had dated, it was like, oh, I could tell it was too much for him. You know what I mean? Right, so right. I just knew with Chris that he wanted to help me. He encouraged me to go to counseling. He reiterated again and again and again how he loved me for me. I didn't need to change. And he gave me a voice. It wasn't just, you know, we didn't just do what he wanted. He would say, you know, what do you want to do? And where do you want to go to eat? And (laughs) this uh, story I'm going to share next, it seems crazy, but for people who have been in an abusive relationship, this just shows how the mind games wear on you because this is just a fact about me. I don't like condiments. <laughs> like I don't like ketchup. I don't like mustard. Nothing like that, right? So when I would go to McDonald's, I would need my burger plain. 
Now that used to irritate my ex-husband to no end because he'd say, oh, they got to make it and we have to wait for you and it takes too long. And so it was always a huge ordeal. So on one of the times when Chris and I went on a date, we had stopped at a rest stop and, you know, we were in line and all I was thinking was like, wow, I really like a burger. It's like, you know, I do like burgers. (laughs) But I had never ordered at a fast food place with him. And so I ended up going with chicken nuggets. And so we took it to go. We got back into the car and, you know, he was driving and he took his out and started eating. And I took the box of chicken nuggets out and I put it on my lap and I just looked at it. You know, then he looked (laughs) over at me and he's like, why aren't you eating that? And so, you know, I took that deep breath and I just said, I didn't want chicken nuggets. And so he was like, well, why did you order them? (laughs) I said, because I wanted a burger, but I was afraid to order it without ketchup and mustard in front of you because I didn't know how you would react. And he just looked at me and he was like, I don't care if you get your burger without ketchup and mustard. He's like, if you want a burger without ketchup and mustard, go get the burger without ketchup and mustard. I mean, and that seems like such a silly little thing. But in that moment, I mean, that was just huge because it had always been such an issue. And so it was just... All those little things he did time after time again that showed me, okay, I can trust him. He's patient with me. He wants me to heal. He wants me to have my own voice. He wants me to be my own person. He wants you you to have a hamburger without ketchup and mustard. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I love that. This is what led you to the love doesn't destroy ministry. Tell me what that looks like for you, because you gave up teaching to be able to do this full time. So what does that look like? What do you do with that? Well, it started when I did resign from teaching. I started by volunteering at our local domestic violence agency. And I started sharing my story with their support groups. And uh, now, like when they have their 40 hour training for new hires and new volunteers, I share my story so they can hear a survivor's story. So I started doing that, but always in the back of my mind, I knew, I mean, it was back in 2011, God had said, you're going to write a book. Like You need to share your story. You need to tell what had happened. So I started slowly working on my book. It was through that, um, and I had joined Capel Writing, that I started getting on Instagram. And then I realized there are a lot of teens on Instagram. I mean, I have two teenagers, you know, Instagram was the thing with them. Uh, It was very hard for me at first because I had gone public in, you know, my own little area with things, but the thought of going public to the whole world was very overwhelming. But then in God's timing, everything is amazing with his timing is that at that point when I was starting to feel that nudge, like, no, you're going to go more public, you're going to go more public, was at the exact same time that everything blew up with the girls and they disclosed everything they had gone through. And so they were no longer going there. And I know that was God because, and that's the thing, when they still had to go over there, it was very hard for me to do this work publicly because I didn't want it to affect them. Right. You know what I mean? I didn't Uh want them to be uncomfortable. I didn't want them to feel awkward because, you know, they still had, you know, they were still going over there. And so it all just came about. So that's when I started being more social on Instagram and started with sharing, like, these are red flags of dating and trying to empower young women with their self-esteem. 
I've developed a lesson that I teach at church youth groups mm-hmm. to just to talk to, you know, young girls about my story and how your relationship status isn't what defines you, that value and your worth come from God. And right. I talk about how it was always a desire in my heart to be married and have children. I just, I love children, even at a young age, I always babysit. And so trying to teach them to, that God knows your desires, but you have to trust him to bring those desires to fruition. Because right. for me, I thought, okay, I've got this boyfriend and I want children. Like I've got to hold on to him, you know, to make this dream come true. But I didn't. God was going to make those dreams come true if I had trusted him. I always went to church as a kid, but I didn't realize that God had a purpose for me. Because as a kid sitting there listening, I always thought that, okay, if you are a pastor or a missionary, God's got a purpose for you. But it's like, no, God has a purpose for all of us. Right. So just trying to explain to teens that you have a purpose, you have value, you're, you know, your value is found in God, not whether you're single or partnered right. up or trust him with your timing of your life and that you don't have to find love in your hometown. Like there's just so much world that God has created right. for us. You talked about red flags and triggers, and that is a part of your ministry and that you actually have a lesson for youth groups. I don't have a lot of teenagers that follow me. Well, probably any, on Instagram or Facebook, but I have a lot of moms of teenagers that do. So mm-hmm. what would what advice would you give them to look for in case their daughter is in a toxic relationship? Intensity is a big one. Like, does the relationship escalate very quickly mm-hmm. to where they're seeing each other all the time? And that intensity often goes hand in hand with isolation. So if you see that your child, you know, has always had this best friend or this group of friends and they've always hung out and now suddenly, okay, they have this boyfriend and they're no longer hanging out with their friends, right? that can be a red flag. And that's what I try to explain to teens that even when you have a partnership and you're dating, you still have to have your own separate identities. Mm -hmm. You still have to have your own interests. It's okay to still go to the mall with your girlfriends because that was something I didn't do. Like right. I mentioned earlier, he always fed it to me. Well, you must love her more than just to keep me only doing stuff with him. And also if there's like an activity, whether they play piano or soccer, if suddenly an activity or a sport or an extracurricular that they do, they stop doing once this relationship starts, you know, that's another red flag. Yeah. And I mean, when I was dating, there was not a cell phone where we were texting. Right. But Back that's in the a day. big thing now. <laughs> <laughs> that if if they seem edgy or like if the phone rings and it's their boyfriend and they're like, oh, I got to get it. You know what I mean? That, that fear right. of like going to miss a call because it's going to be angry, which I mean, my own girls went through with their father. Because if they, if he tried calling them and they didn't answer right away, they had heck to pay. It was like, why didn't you answer when I called? And so right. if your team feels tied to their phone and that they have to give that immediate response to them, you know, that can all be a sign of control uh-huh. and trying to control where they are and what they're doing. And a lot of time, I mean, the physical aspects of unexplained bruises, things like that you know, can be a sign, a drop in grades. If suddenly, you know, they're in this relationship and their grades plummet or, you know, there's a big attitude change, that can all be a sign. 
for me, the big thing was definitely the isolation and the control, because that's one of the things they'll do is try to isolate that person, get them to be where they're only hearing what that person has to say and, you know, not spending time with friends and their whole identity gets wrapped up within them instead of being their own person who also has a relationship. Right. Those are great. I wrote them down. Those are great tips for moms dads, grandmas, aunts, uncles to look Mm. for in the children in their care, because certainly if you, your whole goal is to keep people from having that happen again to anyone else. Thank you so much for sharing your story and being so vulnerable and so open so that other people can hear it and know that there is a way out, that there is hope and trust and all of the good things afterwards. I just am so thankful that you were willing to do that. Now, I always ask my guests two questions. The first one is, what are you reading right now? I am actually reading, I just finished reading today, actually, while I was sitting at an appointment, I just finished reading uh, Taming the To-Do List by Glennis Whitworth. Oh, you know, that's on my list. Oh, worth is it? it? <laughs> is that worth it? Yeah? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. Because yeah, I talked a lot about like with project management and writing a book and trying to do things on Instagram and starting a website, you know, there's a lot the to things. it and it can feel very overwhelming. So she had a lot of good tips of breaking things down and making things manageable and you know not having that to-do list with 500 things and you yeah know, making it little chunks so yeah, right. i found it very informative <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna move that up my list because that's i need right. all of that <laughs> before i ask you the second question where what how far into the process are you in your book well i'm still working on the whole finding a publisher thing um so i actually have two books in process the oh, first wow. one is living in hell but loved by god um, which is my story of yeah the abusive relationship but how you know god did make the way and how god redeemed the broken things he restored me he put the people in places things that i needed when it was time for my escape so that's you know one book and then i'm also working on equipped and empowered which is enduring the co-parenting years with a toxic ex So that book, um, I just recently started. So that's in the writing process. Yeah. And that that's important too, because I would have thought that he wouldn't be allowed to see them at all, but apparently I'm wrong. So (laughs) the system that we live in. Okay, good. Well, you'll have to keep us updated and come back on when they're launching. I'd love to to have you again. And then my, my second question is what is bringing you joy right now? my garden oh the flowers in my garden yes because yes it uh i'm getting to that point where my lilies are going to be in bloom and all there's just gonna be so many different colors so yes when i go out and i we have a front porch and my front garden is there and we have the hummingbird feeder and you know just hearing the birds and seeing the orioles on the feeder and seeing the colors and the flowers it just yeah that brings me joy and are you finding where you live that everything is just more beautiful this spring than it's been. I don't know if not driving for COVID or something has something to do with it, but it's all of our flowers here in Ohio are so lush and beautiful and it's crazy. I th- yeah, because then I think where I live in New York, so it's the same thing. We have long, cold, hard winter. Yeah. So spring is always just so uh, uplifting, but then it's like, you know, we had winter 
but we had a COVID winter. Yeah. So I think that just made it an extra like, oh, yeah, you know, hard. So and just really, yes, appreciating the sunshine and the warmth and the colors. And well, thank you so much, Erin, for sharing your story and for what I am sure there will be women that are touched by this, either themselves or in something they see in their daughters. And I appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to share your stories. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me and, you know, helping me to share the voice and the story. So thank you. Oh, you are very welcome. Beauty from Ashes. Friends, this ministry that Erin has started, Love Doesn't Destroy, is so needed. She has taken the horror of her story and turned it into a beautiful ministry that helps teenagers see the signs when someone is too intense was a word that she used a lot. I love how Erin's story ends with a man who loves Jesus and who loves her and who gives her the voice that she needs, who gives her the opportunity to do this ministry the way that she was purposed and ordained by God. Next week, my guest is once again my good friend Candy Horton, and Candy and I are going to talk about hard and holy. Candy's husband was a man who knew how to do hard and holy work. We are going to spend some time remembering him and the good things that he did and the legacy that he left this world when he went to be with Jesus. Until then, thank you for tuning in. I am Nita Wilkinson from the In the Whisper podcast.